All right. Well, thank you guys. Hey, so uh, last week, you know, we looked at the um, overarching command of Jesus to love one another. Not as we would want to be loved, but as he loved us, we talked about what that meant. We said, hey, when you love like that, love gives. Way to go, you guys. You're leaving, and I didn't even have to ask you to. Thank you. That's awesome. Well done. I forgot you. I'm so sorry. Anywho, um, so yeah, we, you know, we were talking about the loving as Jesus has loved us, not as we would want to be loved. And we said that what that means is that love has to give. Love has to be less so that the object of that love, those that we love, can be more. And I asked you to love our city. I asked you to partner with us to help make our city a better place to live. I asked you to be less so that Jesus could be more and do more right here in our community, right? Um, now, uh, I, having said that, having talked about that overarching command of Jesus, this new ethic that Jesus came to bring of love, I don't know why everyone wouldn't want to be a Christian. I think the message of Jesus is exactly what our country needs. I think it's exactly what our schools need, what our cities need, what our communities need. His message to love one another as He has loved us would, I mean, it is exactly what people need to hear in this day and age. It is laced with and infused with the kind of hope that these days are meant for. So I don't understand why people aren't falling over themselves to become Christians. I really don't, because I think everything about the movement of Jesus is tailor-made for the environment that we find ourselves in today. So what I want to do today is I just want to have a frank and an um, honest conversation with you about what it means for followers of Jesus to be generous and, and just talk about the call of Scripture to that. Um, by the way, last Sunday night, we had an advanced commitment night for our all-in journey. We had about 32 families make commitments, and I'll talk about why it's important to make commitments in a moment. But we, of those 32 families, we had pledges come in for about $940,000 which is awesome. We were super encouraged by that figure since it came from only 32 families. Um, so that means we're a third of the way there. You know, and today, uh, and then for the next couple of weeks, we're going to give you opportunities as well to add to that, uh, to, to determine and state, you know, what your family is going to do. Let me talk about why uh, the commitment piece is so important. You know, Jesus said if you're going to build a tower, you need to estimate how much it would cost, right? You need to know what it's going to cost. And see, we can't go out and do ministry in our community. We can't purchase buildings or equipment or staff those buildings if we don't know how much we have to be able to do that. That's why these commitments are so important. It helps us budget. It helps us know what we can do. Otherwise, there'd be no basis for being able to go out and do any of that. 
Uh, does that make sense? So that's why uh, this journey is so important to what we believe God is calling and asking us to do in our community, just making our community you know, a better place to live. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy 6. We're going to look at two short passages of Scripture today. Uh, the first really consists of a vision for life and then a warning. And then the second is a command. So, or there, and then the, the second set of verses is a command. So here's the first set. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we've, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. So if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds. Some versions say every kind of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. So what he's saying here is that uh, chasing after money can actually cause ordinary people like you and me to quit following Jesus because they just love money more than him. And he goes on to say, and as a result, they've pierced themselves with many griefs. So here's uh, the vision, the vision for our lives that... Uh, Paul is getting at here is that godliness with contentment is great gain. In in other words, when you have those two things, you have everything that you need, uh, both for this life and for the life to come, right? And the warning of these verses is, look, put your hope, put your faith, put your trust in God, put your trust in the provider, not the provision, Put your trust in the one who provides, not in the stuff that he provides. Because if you do that, you know, if you're a lover of money, and and I know many of us would say, well, I don't love money, I just want more. And it, it might kind of be the same thing, right? So anyway, he says, uh, so what Paul is telling us here and reminding us is this, and it's so important to understand. He is saying that the number one competition for your and my affection, for our hearts, the number one competition with God for our affections is not the devil, it's not demons, it's not spiritual warfare. The number one competitor in your heart and mine for our affection other than God is money. And think about it this way, because money promises so many of the things that God does, right? Money promises us security, money promises us freedom, money promises us options. Many of the same things that God promises us, money also promises us. And it's important to understand that. And so Paul gives us the best financial advice we'll ever receive here. He just says, put your hope in the provider, not the provision. So let me, let me just help you. Let's just think about this starkly. Let me, I'm going to make two statements and you tell me which one strikes the biggest nerve in you. Which one brings panic, the most panic to your life? Here's the first statement. There is no God. Versus, there is no money in the bank. There is no money in the bank. 
So ask yourself, which of those stirs the most like anxiety and turmoil, right? See, what Paul is telling us here is that, listen, he's saying it's not good for people like you and I to say yes to ourselves, to buy ourselves everything that we want. It's not good for us to do that. It's good for us to be able to be content, to say, uh, look, I, you know, I have enough. And by, and by the way, contentment here, I want to kind of tell you what the, um, what the word means. It means to be satisfied. It means to be pleased. If I'm content, it means that I recognize that I'm whole. I don't need something else to complete me, right? That I'm whole with what I have and where I am. And so you can see why contentment would be so important, right? And I'll tell you another reason why contentment is so important. Because most of your emotions, they cause us to spend, so let me give you an example. So what do you do, what do you want to do when you're bored? Well, when you're bored, you want to go out and entertain yourselves, right? What do you need to do to entertain yourself? Well, that means you've got to spend some money. What do you want to do when you want to, when you want to celebrate something? Well, when you want to celebrate, you go out and you spend some money, right? What do you do when you're down and you need a pick-me-up? Well, you go out and you spend some money or you pamper yourself. Here's what I'm saying. All of your emotions will drive you to spend. And this is why contentment is so critical. But it isn't just contentment. What did Paul say in these verses? He said, godliness with contentment is great game. It holds promise both for this life and for the life to come. So I want to talk about this word godly for a minute. You know, no higher compliment can be paid to a Christian than to call um, him uh, or her a godly person. I mean, because you can be a conscientious parent, you can be a zealous church worker, you can be a dynamic spokesman, you can be a talented Christian leader, but none of these things matter if at the same time you and I aren't also godly people at our core. Um, in fact, when Paul wants to distill the essence of the Christian life into one brief word, he chooses this word godly. I mean, just think about the book we're in, 1 Timothy. Here's what it says about godliness. We're told in chapter 1 that we're to pray for those in authority that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness. We're to train ourselves to be godly. This means that godliness requires training and effort, that it won't just come to us, that it won't happen unless we pursue it. In fact, we're also told that we are to pursue godliness. The word pursue means unrelenting, persevering, persevering effort, right? Godliness with contentment is held forth as great gain. And finally, we're told a little later, and we'll look at these verses as well, that godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for this life and for the life to come. In other words, it benefits me here, now, today, and it'll benefit me in the life to come, in heaven right? Now, so to be godly is simply this. To be godly is to be like God. 
It's to chase after God. It's to hunger and thirst for God. Godliness is nothing more than a life that's consumed for God and contaminated by God. That's what, that's what godliness is. And that's what we're called to. Godliness with contentment. That's a vision for your life and for mine. And then Paul goes on to say this um, a little later in the same chapter, just a couple of verses. Um, and we're going to focus and kind of land on these for the rest of our time together. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world... Not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, it's interesting. So what teachers of God's Word are told here, what Timothy is being told here, is that we are to command those who are rich in this life to be generous. Now, here's what's interesting. I know what many of you are thinking. You're thinking, hey, this is awesome because I'm off the hook. I don't have to listen to another thing pastor says. You know why? Because you don't think of yourself as rich. So when you hear me say, command those who are rich in this life, you're like, oh, okay, well, he's not talking to me. And I'll tell you why you're thinking that. Because rich people tend to confuse feeling rich with being rich. Let me say that again. In my experience, rich people tend to confuse feeling rich with being rich. And they think that because they don't feel rich, they in actuality are not rich. But here's the fact. Are you ready? If you have an annual household income of $34,000 or more, Stay with me. If you have an average household income of $34,000 or more, you are in the 1% club. You are among the richest 1% of people all over the world. 80% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. And if you do that math in your head, that's way, way less than $34,000 a year. Here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that when billions of people around the world look at you, they think you are filthy rich. And I would ask you, okay, if being in the top 1% of the world isn't enough to make you rich, how much would it take? And interestingly, um, studies kind of um, bear this out. Oh, by the way, let me say this too. But, but here's what happened. See, when I said that you were in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world, none of you jumped up and down. None of you turned to your spouse and high-fived each other and said, you who, honey, we're rich. 
No, I mean, I love this church, right? None of you did that. You know why? Again, because you're confusing feeling rich with being rich, and rich always is a moving target, and studies bear this out, right? Um, uh, so in other words, they went to people who had a million dollars in the bank, and they asked those people that had a million dollars in the bank, are you rich? They said, absolutely not. They said, well, what would you need to be rich? And the people with a million dollars in the bank said, I would need $2.5 million in the bank. So then they went to people that had $2.5 million in the bank, and they said, are you rich? And they said, oh, absolutely not. Well, what would you need to feel rich? Well, we would need $5 million to feel rich. To which you and I are thinking, well, yeah, I guess you would, right? But here's my point. See, rich usually ends up getting defined as having or earning about twice what we currently earn. You know, there are many of you that if, if I said to you, if you made $125,000 a year, you'd be rich, you would say, absolutely I would. Especially if you make in the fifty dollars to $70,000 range right now. But I guarantee you, if you went to somebody that made $125,000 a year and you asked them if they were rich, they're going to say, absolutely not. No way. I got bills to pay. I mean, I got a house payment. I got kids to send to college. I got car payments. I got this. I got that. Because at their heart, rich people tend to confuse feeling rich with being rich, right? Now listen, I am not saying any of this to make you feel guilty. I am saying this to make you feel responsible. I am not saying any of this to make you feel guilty. I'm saying this to make you feel responsible. Because if you have an annual income of $33,000 or more annually, you are among the richest 1% of people all over the world. And what the New Testament says very, very clearly is that rich people, because they've been given more by God and entrusted with more, or because they've been loaned more by God than other people have, they are held accountable for how they use and spend and invest and think about those resources that God has given them. And Paul's already told us here, right, that rich people are at an extra risk when it comes to their spiritual life because rich people can be tempted to put their trust in their wealth rather than in the one who provides see and this is something poor people never do do you know why poor people never put their trust in their riches because they don't have any but what happens is as people begin to amass more stuff, there's a natural inclination to want to put our hope and our trust in that. And as people begin to amass more, it begins to lead to an endless sense of what ifs. Just what ifs, right? So hey, what if the economy tanks? What if inflation goes up? What if the stock market goes down? What if my expenses go up? What if I don't have enough? What if I ruin my kids? What if I lose it? You know, what if there is an emergency? And all of these what ifs that rich people have to deal with suddenly just paralyze them. 
and they cease to do the one thing that God has asked them to do, which is to be generous with what He has so graciously given to them, right? So, I mean, here's the reality, and you know this, but most of us in this room, we're going to run out of time before we run out of money. And you know this because have you ever had a relative die and then you go and you start cleaning out their house and all the stuff that they spent their whole life chasing and that was so important and meant so much to them, you know what you're going to do with half of it? You're going to throw it out. See, we know it's not ours because deep down we know we don't get to keep it. That at some point we have to give it all right back to God, right? Um, So, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to show you a video. This is kind of cool. The other day in in an elders meeting... um, one of our elders came in, he said, hey, you got to check out this video on YouTube. Now, we hadn't asked her to post the video on YouTube. She just did it of her own volition. But I was kind of moved by some of the things she said. I want you to hear it too. So this is uh, um, Adriel Pike, uh, just a part of a post that she posted to YouTube about uh, her commitment to All In and just her um, encouraging us to be engaged with that as well. So check out what Adriel has to say. Um, ultimately, the, you know, the daycare and the outreach ministries that we have in place and that we are looking to do, I just think that they are amazing, and I know that it's what God's wanting us to do. And so um, I heard this song on uh, Caleb by Casting Crowns that start right here. And I would recommend you listen to it because, wow, the first few minutes of that is just amazing. Um, I'll actually play it at the end. Um, So my friend came to me and said, you know, I had a commitment. I was planning on doing this for the all-in. And then I have this whole election thing going on. And what's going to happen? And who's going to win? And are we going to be taxed more? And is it going to be a financial good decision to go ahead and give to this process? And and to these ministries, and um, I just don't know how I feel about that. And that's Satan getting in there and causing fear and doubt in not wanting these to come true and, and come to fruition. So I just feel like it's so important for you guys to really focus in on these devotions. Um, today I was reading through here, and it was uh, talking to us about making a change, and it says, um, if personal comfort is our goal in life, we will fight against change. However... If Jesus is our ultimate treasure, change becomes an exciting opportunity. And how true is that, right? That, you know, so many of us have not given until it hurts. We haven't experienced persecution and and shame for believing in in Christ and and, uh, sharing the gospel. And so now is the time for us to do this and to really push until it hurts. uh, Because that's when change happens. That's when a possibility on the other side for what God has in this world. Our our reason for living is to bring others to Christ, right? And so what are we doing sitting back and just letting everybody else, uh, you know, be planted where they are and not picking them up and bringing them to God, right? So I just feel like it's really important that we focus in on this. Um, You know, our treasures, what we have, it's not ours. I was listening last week to the sermon, and it's, it's not ours. It's God's, right? I mean, my job. My job, I didn't get it because of me. I got 
because God gave me the talents that I have. I don't get to go to work every day because of my health and what I've done for my health. Because Lord knows I have not done so many good things. You know, I eat terrible. But, you know, God gives me the health that I have. And those treasures that I have in my bank account and, and things, those are not mine. They are His. And I have got to give that back to Him and to what He wants to happen in this community. And no matter what happens in our country, this is what God wants for us. And so... Um, it says here yesterday's is uh, the book of Acts is a direct challenge to our desire or natural desire to play it safe. And that's what I do. I play it safe every day and I don't want to play it safe anymore. And I hope that you don't want to either and that you want to be part of this change, that you want to make this happen for Shelbyville community, that you want to be a disciple and reach out to people, and even if it's not you directly speaking to them because you don't feel comfortable or whatever, I do encourage you to do that. I'm not good at it either, but by giving to this all-in project and to really push that, I think that it will be amazing for what God has for this place in Shelbyville, and I just praise God for that. So, yes, I just love Adriel's passion. I love her conviction about that. And just, yeah, I thought you would appreciate that with that too. So, hey, something else I've kind of learned about rich people that I want to share with you. Maybe you'll kind of relate to some of this. Not only do rich people confuse feeling rich with being rich, but I'll tell you something else about rich people that you probably don't know, and that's this. Rich people have unique stresses and worries and pressures that normal people don't have. Let me give you some example. Did you know that rich people actually have to do some sort of estate planning or financial planning? They actually have so much money that they know they're going to run out of time before they run out of money. I'll tell you this too. Rich people, they have so much money that they will actually pay other people to help them plan for how they're going to invest all that money that they don't need, they're not using it. It's just lying around, right? i tell you this, rich people have access to so much food that they are actually tempted to overeat. I mean, I know that sounds absolutely crazy. Every single week they throw out food that went bad because they couldn't possibly eat it all. They even occasionally have to go through their pantries. By the way, a pantry is a room that rich people have that's dedicated just to the storage of their food. It's like a room where they keep all that. And so they even have to go through there and throw out food that just sat in there for too long. And I'll tell you what else. Rich people have unique problems with their children. They do. They worry about them. They say things like, my kids have so much stuff they don't appreciate it. Or, my kids aren't learning the value of hard work because of how much we've you know, been able to give them. Or, our children are growing up acting like they deserve all this because we've been able to do so much for them. I'll tell you something else that's amazing about rich people. Rich people will complicate their lives based solely on taste. I mean, it sounds crazy, 
But rich people will actually walk into a bathroom or a kitchen where, uh, where cabinets work, they're fine, they, there's nothing wrong and the appliances all work and just because they're tired of the way their bathroom or kitchen looks, they'll tear all that out uh, and replace it with all new cabinetry um, just to taste. And then, do you know what rich people will do? They'll complain about all the construction and the dust and the debris and all the, um, you know, all the inconvenience of that on their lives while they're ripping out their bathrooms and their kitchens. I mean, it's so crazy, right? There's a social pressure that uh, normal people don't understand on rich people. Rich people who are surrounded by other rich people live in a culture that expects them to dress in a certain way and, you know, have the right kinds of accessories, right, that other rich people have. I mean, things like purses and belts and wallets and jewelry and clothing and emblems and labels, you know, that kind of thing. Now listen, rich people don't want any of this to be true but it's just part of the world you know that they have to live in right and so check this out often a rich woman will actually walk into her closet by the way a closet is a room that rich women have just for their clothes I mean, they just keep their clothes in there and nothing else right and she'll walk in there and um, now listen, I've not actually heard this, I'm, I, you know, but I've, I've, I've not actually seen this, but I've heard of this happening. She'll walk into that closet filled with clothing, and what will she say? What? Well, yeah, you guys know some rich people too, don't you? That's absolutely amazing. Yeah, they'll walk in and they'll say that. Usually if a guy walks into the closet, he says, I have nothing clean to wear, right? That's the difference between men and between women, right? It's just amazing. Now, meanwhile, the husband is down in something called a garage. Yeah, rich people, check this out. They actually have spaces in their house designated for their automobiles. And they, have, they don't just have one automobile. They have like maybe sometimes two or three. And it gets worse for rich people because, see, they feel pressure to always drive the latest model. So it isn't enough that they might have two or three cars. Every three to five years, they've got to upgrade the car so they have the latest, you know, um, bells and whistles and technology and all that. And so while the wife's up in her closet saying, I got nothing to, to wear, the guy is down in his garage wanting, saying, hey, I need a newer car. And I'll tell you this, rich people have another problem too. You want to know what it is? Many of them work for companies that will actually pay them money not to come to work. They get these things called vacations, and this creates all kinds of levels of stress and complexity for rich people. Because, uh, you know, this creates, uh, they have to figure out how to leverage some of their extra time and resources to make that vacation go and work. And this creates fights and arguments about how they're going to use and spend their extra time and money while they're not at work. And worse yet, rich people often feel a social pressure to enjoy and spend and do and see, maybe more than they should. 
And then what they'll do is they'll post all that on social media so that other rich people can see all the cool things they did and then want to go and plan similar events. And it creates kind of a competition among rich people for who can do and be and see and do the most. It's just so crazy. I know this seems surreal to you. I know you can't relate to any of this at all. And I know this even just sounds so over the top, but rich people will actually go out and shop just for leisure. Like just for fun. Because they're bored, right? Um, Sometimes rich people will also feel a need to research their shopping options, you know, because they have so many options. They have so many choices at their disposal that they've got to make sure they research and find absolutely, you know, the best product or the best deal. And this in and of itself can be really, really stressful. See, you get this, right? Now that, now that I've said it all, rich people have layers of stress and complexity that normal people don't have to deal with. But the bigger problem for rich people is they can be rich and not even be aware that they're rich. Don't you find it interesting that uh, there's a lot of books out there about how to get rich, but there aren't very many books about how to live rich or how to be rich. And what Americans need is an education in how to be rich. So important. So when I stand up and and the Word says command those who are rich in this world to be generous, I need you to know that I'm only doing the thing that Scripture asks me to do. Now, uh, listen, God's desire for you and for me is that we be a generous people in the same way that He was generous with us. And, And I know that there are some of you here, there are some people in the room, and you have some church hurt. And that church hurt is keeping you from hearing what I'm saying today. Let me give you an example of this. So I was talking to a friend of mine this past week, and he said, you know, I actually went to a church. He said, I don't go there anymore. In fact, this was my last Sunday there. I went to a church, and the entire church service was about how you should, how and why you should leave the church in your will. And he goes, and that left a terrible taste in my mouth. It made me think that all the church was after was my money. And so I walked out that Sunday and I didn't go back. And he said, and i got to be honest, as I've kind of processed this ask at SCC, this all-in ask, I've kind of felt some of that hurt, kind of some of that suspicion kind of creeping back in. You know, and, and I would just say this. Um, I get that some of you have some church hurt, but don't allow church hurt to keep you from doing the thing that God clearly is asking you to do. I would say uh, something else as well. Uh, As it comes to this campaign, as it comes to this discipleship journey, my heart as, as your pastor is this. I don't want something from you primarily. I really don't. But I do want something for you, 
I want you to have to wrestle with your Maker and your Savior. And I want you to have to struggle with what He's calling you to offer back to Him. Because at the end of the day, if we all wrestle with God about what He wants us to do, we're going to be better for it. We're going to be better people, we're going to be a better church, and we're all going to live in a better community, right? Now, um, and this is so genius, people do this, and I get why, because it really is genius. See, if I command you to be generous as Scripture asks me to do, and you make it about me, like in other words, that I'm the one with the bad motives, like, well, hey, here it is, here's the ask, pastor's just trying to get his hand in my pocket, knew that day was going to come, right? If you make it about me, that's so good for you, right? Because that lets you off the hook. And so here's what I would say to that. If you don't trust me or you don't trust our leadership, this isn't the right church for you, right? I mean, it just isn't. You can't grow here. You can't learn here. You can't receive here. So here's what I would say to you. If you don't trust me, then find a church in this community with a pastor that you do trust and begin to give generously there. But either way, you're not off the hook. Because if you're not going to trust me, you need to find a place where you do trust the leadership and you can begin to give generously in that location. It really is genius if you make it about me, right? Because, But it's not. It's not. It's short-sighted because the call is to be generous no matter where we are or where we're plugged in. So um, this is why, folks, we've said all, time and time again that in this journey, the call, the primary goal of this discipleship ask is 100% participation. So here's what I'd say, if you're here this morning and you've never been a faithful or a regular giver, it's so important to your soul, it's so important to your spiritual journey that you begin to be a faithful, regular giver. It's so important. If you're here this morning and you've never ever offered up a dime to the ministry or the heritage or the legacy of this church, I'm so glad that you are here. I am. But you need to step up and be on the hook for something. You know, whatever level you're at looking at going to the next level of generosity in your giving journey. All of us have generosity stories. All of us have giving stories. We should have. We have to have as followers of Jesus because that's Jesus' posture with us, right? He never stops giving and giving and giving and giving. And so we need to be like Him. We need to love with a lay-down-our-lives lay kind of love. Be less than so others can be more kind of love. And I want you to notice too that the call, when Paul commends generosity and giving here, he really talks about it not as a right and wrong so much, but as a smart or foolish. Because essentially what he's saying is he's saying, look, 
when rich people are generous towards others, um, they send their stuff on ahead. In other words, uh, in other words, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead when you invest it towards eternity. He's just saying, look, it's just smart. It's savvy. Um, to invest your resources in eternity because then it goes with you. Otherwise, you can't take any of that with you. So when I was growing up, one of my favorite board games was Monopoly. Any Monopoly players in the room? Yeah. Isn't it awesome when you just destroy other people in a game of Monopoly? When you just own everything and then people like have to go around the board, you know, and land on your property and it's just like a slow death for everybody around you, right? But here's the problem with Monopoly. At the end of the game, all those properties, you know where they go? They go right back in the box, right? I mean, so so it was great for an hour or two or three or four, right? But after that, it really doesn't matter. Do you know what happens with all the stuff that we spend all our time accumulating and chasing and earning? At some point, for every one of us in the room, all that stuff just goes right back in the box, And this is why, Paul says, it's wise, it's smart, it's savvy to invest in eternity because that's what awaits all of us, not just the here and the now. So here's what we're going to do. Did we do better? I didn't even stick around to ask. Did we do better? Did you guys get these when you came in today? Okay, awesome. Thank you. So what I want everybody to do is pull out your commitment cards, and I want you to look at page three. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through this, um, and then we're gonna, I'm going to ask Sharon to come on up and go ahead and get plugged in and um, ready. But listen, here's the thing. So some of you are here this morning and you know you're kind of ready. You've talked this over. You know exactly what God is asking you to give. Others of you, maybe you're still processing that. You're still trying to think this through. And I get that. That's why we're not only going to have a time of commitment today, We'll also have one next Sunday on November the 29th, and then we'll have a final Sunday on Sunday, December 6th for you to do that. So I don't want you to feel pressure today to come up with a number or an amount. There's still time for this to breathe. There's still time for you to wrestle with with God about what it is that He's asking you to do. But if you're here and ready today, this is how to kind of think this through. So you're going to see if you're on this page right here in your booklet. Oh, and by the way, those of you who are online uh, worshiping with us from home, you can go to um, sccallin.org backslash commitment. And what you're going to find there is you're going to find a video that talks about what a one fund is. You'll find a video that will walk you through the instructions of filling out this card. And then right there online, you can fill out a commitment card with us, those of us that are in the room, and you can make that same exact commitment online. So uh, this works for you, whether you're at home or whether you're in the room. So if you look at this page, I'm just going to walk us through it quickly. So the first line is thinking back, okay, what did did we give to the church last year? 
For some of us, that will be zero. For some, that will be 500. For others, that'll be 1,000. For others, it might be 10,000, right? So whatever that number is, you write that number. What did we give last year? Then, what am I going to give in addition to that number for the next two years, or specifically for the next one year, right? So then I total that. Let's say you gave $1,000 last year. You want to give $2,000 to all in. That equals $3,000. You're going to multiply that by two because this is a two-year commitment, a two-year journey. So that gives you another number. And then you're going to see there's one more category. It's stored resources. Stored resources. So in other words... Some of you have resources laying around that you're not using. You have stocks that you've purchased that have accumulated, that, have, um, that are worth far more. And the cool thing about a stock as a st- stored resource is if you've invested in a stock and you invested 10000 and that stock is worth thirty, dollars um, you can make that $30,000 commitment to the church uh, but you really only invested 10 and you avoid the capital gains that you had on that stock, right? So, uh, so just what stored resources is God asking you um, to offer up to the campaign? A camper, a car, a house, a stock, whatever. So you add, put the value of that down and then in the big white line you add all that up and that represents the value you know, of your total commitment. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a worship song. This is one of my personal favorite worship songs. We've sang it here for a number of years uh, because it's important that this be an act of worship for you. It's important that you see this as, hey, I've been blessed to be a blessing. God, thank you that I can be generous. Thank you that I have some stuff laying around, you know, that I can offer up to you and to your service and to the kingdom of God. So uh, I'm going to ask you to actually fill these out as Sharon is singing. She's going to pause and then I'll um, come up and give the thumbs up. And at that point, you know, you can, uh, we have offering boxes here at the front. We have offering boxes all across the back. Um, We're all spread out over the room so we don't all have to congregate in one area. Just want to ask you, uh, then we'll, we'll make it time for you to come up and as an act of worship to just make your commitment to God in that moment, okay? So let me pray for us um, and then we're going to worship together and then we're going to bring our commitments together to our God. Papa, um, God, you're just asking us to do, you know, to offer back to you what you've so graciously and generously given to us. So God, help us be a faithful people. Help us be a generous people um, as your word asks us to be. And God, we just ask you to use our offerings and our uh, time and our talents to do great things, to make our community a better place to live, to make our church a better place to worship, uh, to make, um, you know, uh, yeah, to just, uh, Lord Jesus, we just need to be less so that you can be more in our church and in our community. And so would you help us to do that well? And would you just share your joy with us as we do it? I ask and I pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.